Good morning, Grace Marietta. Good morning. I love it. I, I love it. I'm, I love being here. It's good to be back. Uh, yes, I, I did get to preach a few years ago, but then, yes, I was here uh, when this church was kind of in transition from Holt Road Baptist into Grace Marietta, and so it's good to be back. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Nahum. We are going to be continuing our uh, series in the Minor Prophets, and uh, we're going to look at the book of Nahum. It is only three chapters, uh, and as you are turning there, um, I uh, like like he said, my name is Benton Cranford. Uh, I have been married for coming up on 10 years, which has been amazing, to my wonderful wife, Megan. Uh, and we have two kids, Judah and Jones. Jones is nine months, and Judah is about to be four years old. And actually remember when Judah was born, uh, because it was coming up on my 30th birthday. And I don't know if you are a goal setter. My birthday is actually August 30th, so if you want, you can hit me up on Instagram or Facebook and wish me a happy birthday later. But for the 30th birthday on August 30th, it is known as the golden year. And so leading up to that moment, I had all of these goals and expectations for my life up until that point. I'm like, I'm gonna write tons of books, I'm gonna go do this play, I'm gonna go travel, I'm gonna go see these things. And when I turned 30, um, I didn't hit a lot of those goals. And I'm such a goal-oriented person that I became devastated, actually, of not hitting these goals. To the point of, a few months later, uh, if you would see me, it looks like I had just let myself go. I uh, had my shirt inside out. My hair would be all over the place. Sometimes I would shower. Sometimes I wouldn't. But also, I would grow this really disgusting beard that would grow on my neck. It was a neck beard or a neard, uh, if you're familiar with that language. And so I grew a neard on my neck. And during that time, uh, my friend who you may have heard speak, Dave Rhodes, he was talking to me and we were talking about not achieving goals. And when, we were not achieve- when I was not achieving those goals, I shared that with him and how devastated I was and I felt like I was losing hope for whatever was to come next. And he said, I would love to hear how you recovered from not hitting your goals. And I was thinking to myself, Dave, look at me. My shirt is inside out. I haven't showered in a few days. I have a neared for crying out loud. Do you think that I got it together right now? Because I don't. I have let myself go. Now for you, it may not be letting yourself go in that way. It could be with a job. Maybe you're in a job right now where there is someone who is talking down to you or walking all over you, and you have kind of let it go. There may be a relationship that you have in your life right now, and you love to serve, and they know that about you, and so maybe they use that or manipulate you because you will just serve no matter what. It may be letting yourself go with your kids. There's times where I feel like I'm fighting with Judah about the TV and what he can watch and not watch, and let's be educational, let's be fruitful here, Judah. Let's not watch these things. And then sometimes I'm just like, whatever. I'm just gonna give in, I give up, I can't. <laughs> the three-year-old wins, all right? He's, not, he, he's got me beat. 
There also may be some times even with your spouse. Now, don't look at them right now, but there may be times with your spouse where you are told where to put the key to the car, but sometimes the key to the car is not where it should be. Now, I know in my head it's supposed to be right next to the front door, but somehow it ends up in my dirty clothes or it ends up in the toy box or it ends up next to the sink and it's all over the place. And my wife, she doesn't give in or let go or give up hope. She continues to remind me, hey, the key is supposed to be over here. But there could be times with her that she could even feel a sense of, you know what, I give in, I give up. Benton is never gonna get this, that the key should be located right here so we know where it always is. For you, there may be some spaces where you have given up hope or you've given up, given in, letting it go or letting yourself go in a certain area. And so the key question I want to ask as we look through the book of Nahum is how do we regain hope and remove hesitations? Not only how do we regain hope and say, oh yeah, you know, my future is now bright. I can now step into this thing. I can write the book. I still can go see the things. But how do we also remove hesitations? Because we can see those things out there and say, golly, do I really want to go in that direction? Do I really want to give it my all? Do I really want to step back into this? So the question I want to ask is, how do we regain hope and remove hesitations? And for the people of Judah, which is going to be the primary audience, as you'll see here in a second, to the book of Nahum, there were other questions that they were feeling and sensing. And so let's go ahead and look at this list of questions that kind of fall under where we could lose hope. And I want to ask you all this question. What area of your life have you felt either hopeless or feeling like you want to give up or concede or you want to compromise an area of your life or you have a lack of motivation or you feel insecure, you feel overlooked, you feel overshadowed by someone else? What I would love to do is to look at these lists of questions and I would love for us to share. Now, you can share with the person next to you or you can text somebody, but just letting them know, I think is going to be helpful for where we're going to go. And so what I would love for you to do right now is to pick one of these questions that stand out to you and say, just very quickly, I feel hopeless at my job. Now, if you can't think of anything right now, you could say, I remember a time that I felt hopeless in my job, or I felt overlooked in my own home, or I feel overshadowed when I'm hanging out in our neighborhood. What is it for you that stands out? Right now, go ahead, let's discuss it with the person next to you or on your phone, you can text somebody if you'd like. But let's go ahead and say, hey, this question stands out to me and I could see this in my own life or I've seen this here before. Go ahead and share right now.
Here's what we're going to see. Here's what we're going to see in the book of Nahum is that he is giving us a pattern to regain hope and remove hesitations. And so we're gonna look into what that pattern is this morning, but I want you to keep that question and that area of your life kind of in front of you to be able to think, okay, this is the example. Now I'm gonna use Nahum's pattern to be able to regain hope here, to remove the hesitations here, so that I can begin stepping into this area where maybe I feel like I've conceded or given up. And so let's look at the pattern that Nahum gives us. Nahum 1, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can read along with me or on your phones. It says, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Nineveh. You just heard about it last week. Allie spoke on this with Jonah, and now Nineveh is here again. But the difference is, it is 150 years later. We have some context here for you up on the screens. Nahum is living in Israel, and he's talking about Nineveh 150 years after Jonah, and we'll see that the primary audience is actually the tribe of Judah, and the secondary audience is Nineveh. I've got a map right after this to show you kind of these areas that we're talking about here. And if you look in the kingdom of Judah, which is yellow, that is the primary audience. And Nahum is living in the blue area that's actually uh, been taken captive, and he grew up in ca- uh, captivity, And he's speaking to Judah, but he's speaking about the Assyrian Empire on the top right, where the capital is located called Nineveh. And so we see that he is speaking from captivity to Judah about this enemy called Assyria living in Nineveh. And as we continue to read in verse 2 through 7, what we're going to see is that this is actually directly speaking to Judah. So you see that's concerning Nineveh, but he's actually speaking towards the Hebrew people. And before we get into those verses, we have seen, or now we are beginning to see, what has unraveled when it comes to Nineveh. If you remember 150 years before with Jonah, Nineveh repents and the Lord relents. But now, 150 years later, there is a repeat of sin that has taken place in Nineveh, and the Lord here is gonna say, enough is enough. I'm allowing you to go physically where your hearts are already at spiritually. That was one of the quotes from Buddy Hoffman, one of the founding pastors of the Grace Churches. He would always say this, is that, There comes a point when the Lord says, enough is enough. 150 years later, he is now saying, enough is enough. I'm going to allow Nineveh to go physically, which we'll see he's going to take them over. I'm going to allow them to go physically where their hearts are already at spiritually. And so we see Nineveh has now repeated sin, and it has grown to an exponential amount. There's a king in Assyria, King Ashurbanipal II, 
And he says this about what's going on. Great is the number of them in the land of Kirhi that I slew. 260 of their fighting men I cut down with the sword. I cut off their heads. I formed them into pillars. I flayed all the chief men as of roasting them of the city who revolted, the chief men of the city who revolted. And I covered the pillar with their skin. For some I cut off their hands and their fingers, from others I cut off their noses and ears, from some I put out their eyes, I put, out, I put their heads on posts all around the city. Such a gruesome group of people now in Nineveh. And you, you've got to think to yourself, wait a minute, these are the people that repented, the Lord relented, and they were giving praise to God. Now 150 years later, this is what they're doing. Where is the disconnect here? The same even with the Israelites, even with Israel and Judah, these two tribes, 150 years later, they have forgotten their stake in God's kingdom. They have forgotten who they were in the process as well. There's a disconnect. And the disconnect, I think, is this, is that 150 years before, somewhere along the road, people forgot to tell of who God was. They've forgotten to remind the next generation about who God was. Before we go any further, when we ask this question, how do we regain hope and remove hesitations, we need to see that this question is not just about us, but the generations to come. That this, is, this question is not just about present day, but it is about 150 years from now. That's where the real question takes root. Even to be more specific, the purpose of answering this question about regaining hope and removing hesitation is not just about you, but the ones after you. And so don't lose hope. Don't give up because your kids need you because the next generation needs you. Don't be so driven by success that you neglect your kids because your kids need you. Don't drink yourself silly because your son and your daughter need you. Don't distract yourself with other things because your son and your daughter need you. What I'm saying is don't give up hope, don't check out because the next generation needs you. This question is not just about how do you have hope again, but it's also thinking, how can I help others regain hope? How can I help the ones around me who are losing hope in their own lives? This question is not just an individualistic question, but this question that is playing out here is about tribes to come, people to come, generation after generation after generation. And I'm speaking to myself here. I've got two little ones right now, and I so think it's still about me. And then I see how they respond to me. I see how they talk to me when I have checked out, when I have removed myself from my home. Maybe I feel like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go do things for the Lord. I'm gonna go out in the city and do all this stuff. And then I realize, wait a minute, I'm actually, I, I'm checking out from home to do these things and what's happening is I have given up in a certain area. I've started to lose hope in certain things. And so I wanna regain that hope, not only for myself, but for my kids and for their kids. 
And so how do we regain hope? You've been probably waiting. You're like, Benton, you really have not answered the question yet. You're just really digging in here. Here we go. How do we regain hope and remove hesitation? Here's the first thing. It's actually in uh, Nahum 1, 2 through 7. And we're going to read verses 2 and 3, and then we're going to read verse 7. Just so you know, again, this is what's called an acrostic. And if you, an acrostic is where the Hebrew alphabet is the beginning of every line. It's kind of like ABC when it comes to sharing the good news. Here's a little freebie here. Um, when it comes to sharing the good news, you can have a little ABC thing where you say, hey, I need to help them admit where their need of Christ is. I need to help them believe, A and B. I need to help them believe that Jesus is the only way. And then C, confess that the Lord is their savior. And in that confession to recognize he is the Lord of my life and so I'm going to follow him. So that's like ABC. It's the same thing here. It is an acrostic in Hebrew writing. Last thing I'll say here is that the Hebrew acrostic is a victory hymn to say that Yahweh is come to bring justice once and for all. So let's read verses two and three and then verse seven. It says this, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. This would probably be a sermon that Jonah would have loved to preach. He's like, man, why didn't I get this sermon? I got the other sermon about repenting and he relents and now I'm, I wish I was teaching this one, but he's, he's gone at this point, so it, no, no can do. Verse three, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. We see that he is jealous, we see that he's avenging, we see that he is wrathful, we see that he does be slow in anger and he is great in power. Let me break down these words for us because sometimes we can misconstrue them or, or have wrong definitions for them or even use human terms to define who God is. And so we see that the Lord is jealous. Now there's a difference between jealousy and envy. Um, you can find this uh, on David Paulson's commentary or you could read Brene Brown's book. I think there's something about the heart. She talks about this too. So, you know, a little freebie, whoever you like, David Paulson or Brene Brown, says this, that the jealousy is saying that there is something that God has that is being stolen or taken from him and he wants it back. Envy is saying, I have a lack or I have a need and I want what you have. And so he is saying here that the Lord is jealous. He's saying, I want my kids back. I'm tired of them being treated the way that Ashurbani Paul has been treating them. And so we see that he's not envious, like he is not insufficient, he is self-sufficient, he has no lack, but he is saying, I want what is mine. We see avenging, that it's not revenge, it's avenge. And for to be avenging is to say, I'm going to bring justice. I'm going to balance the scales. I'm going to right the wrong here. Revenge is to say, I'm going to lash out even further. I don't care about justice here. I'm going to hurt you more than you hurt me. And so he's saying, no, 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 I'm avenging here. I'm not trying to get revenge. I'm trying to avenge. And then it says he is wrathful. Now this idea of wrath doesn't actually just talk about some wrath in the Old Testament, it's also in the New Testament. It's in Romans 1.18, it's also in Revelation 
And so we see that God is wrathful. So what does the wrath of God really mean? Well, his wrath is not our wrath because we see that he says he's slow to anger. Sometimes our wrath is very reactionary. We get very impatient. We're like, oh man, I, I, I hope to knock this person out here. I'm so frustrated with them. But his is slow to anger. And Jonah would be like, yeah, 150 years slow to anger here. Come on. But we see that his wrath is not our wrath. We also see that the wrath here is not actually about the people. And if you remember this uh, in the New Testament, this is about uh, principalities. This is not about flesh. This is about principalities here. And he's going after sin. There's a great article, if you want to read it online, about God's wrath called The Five Truths About God's Wrath. It's by Joseph Schumann. And he says this, God's wrath is his love in action against sin. I love that definition. God's wrath is his love in action against sin. And when Judah is hearing this, this is a celebration moment. They're like, wow, finally, finally God has come and we can now celebrate. Not only do we see that he is slow to anger and great in power, that there is no God above him, and that he gives power from himself. Verse seven, we'll get to the middle portions here in just a second, but verse seven says this about God. This is actually uh, a partial acrostic, so it's, it's reading like A, B, C, D, and then it skips E, F, G, and then it kind of goes back as H, I, J, K, L, M, O, P. Verses four through six is, a br- is the broken part of this acrostic but then it picks back up in verse seven. So let's read verse seven. And I'll tell you why it is broken right in the middle of God's character. It says this, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. It's a very simple verse, very powerful verse. It is, I would recommend a verse to memorize this week. If you want to memorize a verse, I feel like this is the verse to memorize. It's up on the screen as well. But there is also this conversation about God's character again. It says that the Lord is good, that everything that flows from him is good. Everything that flows from him is life. It says that he is a stronghold, meaning it's like this uh, defense that has been set up, these like barracks that have been set up that cannot be taken down. And it says it is a stronghold. It's gonna hold the land. It's gonna hold the territory. It's gonna withstand. And he's a stronghold in the day of trouble for those who take refuge in him. And so point number one is this. When it comes to regaining hope and removing hesitation, first we need to celebrate the full character of God celebrating the full nature of who God is. Not just the parts we like, not just the parts we even know about, but the parts that are fully who he is. And not just knowing about them, but this is a victorious hymn. This is like a declarative thing. John Wesley says this about verse seven. He says, this is moved from the great consolation or the great consolation prize, verse seven, after hearing one through six, to also the great declaration of who God is. And so what he's articulating here is that this is a victorious 
celebratory hymn of who God is, and we sing it, we praise it, we declare it. The fullness of who he is. That he is, as you would read in 1 through 3, that he is fully just, but he is also, in verse 7, fully merciful. That the ones who seek him, he will give them shelter. We see that he is fully just and fully merciful. And so to regain hope and remove hesitation, we see that it starts with God, And then the next thing I would even ask, if you want to write this down or just even think about this later, is saying, okay, what aspect of God am I missing from my own life? What characteristic do I tend to maybe de-emphasize or not emphasize or not even think about in my day? And maybe even write that down this week or write it down now if you'd like. But for me, when I start losing hope, when I start giving up, when I got no drive to do anything, I become really, really passive and checked out. What I recognize is I live a lie that I think God has forgotten me and he's actually cared about someone else over me. I have a huge comparison issue. If if you're on Instagram too, maybe you've got that issue sometimes. I get a little envious because I feel like I've got a lack here. But I forget that God has not forgotten me and sometimes even with maybe sin, maybe there's a sin that you feel like you've committed and you're like, this, this burden I created and now I've got to bear it and now I've got to walk with it. And we miss this aspect of God's grace and his mercy. Maybe there's something that is unhealed in you or maybe a friend or maybe someone you know then you're like, where is the healing, God? And what we see here is that he is great in power and he will right every wrong. He will bring healing. He will be just against sin, the brokenness that is in this world. He will bring it on. I've got a few uh, minutes here left, and I want to, I'm going to kind of give you the cliff notes for points two and three, and then we're going to come back to point four to finish. We see here that it is celebrating the full character of God. That's the first step. It starts with God. Let's see God. Let's celebrate who God is. And now there's gonna be this next step for regaining hope and removing hesitation. Like I said, it's a partial acrostic and I won't read it. It's in verses four through six, but it's all about God's creation, yet there's something weird that has happened to creation over time. And what he's, what he's showing us here is that there's a broken acrostic because there's brokenness in creation. And so it starts with God, talking about how he's fully just. Then there's brokenness in creation or chaos in creation. And then there is God's character again. It starts and ends with God. But there is this chaos of creation that is swirling around. And Nahum kind of separates two things for us to help us see, hey, this is how you stop the swirl and begin regaining hope and continuing to remove hesitations. Verse 15, if you could read this with me. This is chapter one, verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings the good news. This is actually referring to himself. Who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. There's the audience. Fulfill your vows, for never shall the worthless pass through you, he is utterly cut off. So there is this point number two for regaining hope and removing hesitation 
in our lives, we need to separate that which is peace and separate that which is worthless. We need to identify who are the ones in our life that publish peace in our life. The word in the Hebrew is shalom, meaning there is brokenness and chaos in creation, and shalom is like setting that right again. And so to regain hope and remove hesitations, he's saying, go towards the people who give you the good news. Go towards the people who give you peace and let the worthless pass through you. Don't let yourself go, let it go. Don't give up on yourself and what God's doing in you. Let the worthless pass away. So what is the worthless? He says this in 2 verse 10. He starts identifying that which is worthless. If we're trying to figure out the swirl here and figure out what is worthless, he says this. He says, desolate or empty, desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble. That verse 10 in the beginning is an onomatopoetic word, or onomatopoeia, if you remember that, is that it sounds like an activity when you read it. So I'm gonna read it in my best Hebrew voice that I can. I studied Greek, so this is gonna be a tragedy. <laughs> Thank you. Just see if you're still with me, and you are. I appreciate that. It says, Buka me buka balak. Buka me buka balak. Empty, desolate, ruin, or waste. Buka me buka balak. It sounds like the crackling of pottery hitting the floor. It's the, it's the, it's the, when you hear a pot drop, which I've heard a few of those when you have a three-year-old and a nine-month-old, you hear the pot just kind of burst. And what he is referencing here is that the things that are worthless are like empty and desolate and they're like fragile. They're actually fragile things. You might think it's strong against you, but it's actually rather fragile when you look at it from his perspective. You might think that this, there's an addiction that's really pressing on you, but when you look at it from the Lord's perspective, he's like, this is empty. This is desolate. This is ruin. So much so, it's just like you just knock it over and it bursts onto the floor. That's how easy. It actually says this in chapter three. It's like a fig tree that has heavy figs. and If you just touch it, the fig hits the ground. That's how fragile actually Nineveh is. And they think, these people have been coming at us for 150 years. He's like, no, 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 no. It's empty, it's desolate, it's ruined. And if you remember the, the I'll just read it for you here. In Jeremiah, it says this in 2.13. This is how he begins separating that which is worthless and that which brings peace. For my people, this is the Lord speaking to the Israelites, for my people have committed just two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, that's the one that brings peace, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves. It is like broken cisterns or broken pottery that cannot hold water. And so when we start separating in the chaos, okay, how do I regain hope and remove hesitations? We need to get the worthless things out of our lives, the things that are empty, desolate, and ruined. And he even defines it further. What is empty, desolate, and ruined? What is actually broken and worthless that is causing us to lose hope, causing us to give into this instead of letting it go? He says this in verse uh, chapter three, one through three, and describing that which is worthless. 
Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the parade, the crack of the rip, the whip and the rumble of the wheel. Galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear. Hosts of slain, the heads of corpses, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. There are so many dead bodies. We see that what is worthless is something that appears empty. It, it appears very fragile. It appears like it's not maybe a big deal. But he is saying here, it will lead to death. And not even just one piece of death, but it is like bodies on top of bodies, corpses on tops of corpses. And we see that this is a physical display, but we could also apply this to our spiritual lives. Is that we, if we give in to what is worthless and not let it pass through us, Yes, it may be empty, and maybe we're feeling a sense of emptiness. Maybe it's like not gratifying enough or satisfying enough. But he's saying if you keep going down that trail and you bring broken cisterns trying to get some water, it's ultimately going to lead to death. And you're gonna see this kind of death upon death. So that is what is worthless. Now going back into Nahum 2, I'm hopping all over the place, but hopefully you're still with me. What do we do with that which is worthless? If I'm reading this as the Hebrew people, at this point in chapter two, I'm like, oh yeah, here we go, about to take over, we're gonna go conquer the Assyrian Empire. That's right, that's what Nahum's about to tell us right here. And then we read in verse two, it says this, the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob, and the majesty of Israel. For the plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. These next few verses are epic. I mean, if you just wanna read for fun, just read this book, it is epic. It feels like, I don't know if you ever remember Lord Tennyson talking about the cannons. He's like, cannons on the right, cannons on the left. I think he's British. Cannons are ahead. Maybe Douglas should come do this. I don't know. But there are cannons, you know, and they're firing. This is what it sounds like. It's just an epic reading right here. Listen to this. How does the Lord restore Jacob? They think, okay, the Lord's restoring Jacob. Now we're about to go fight and take over Assyria. And this is what it says. It says, the shield of his mighty men is red. They're Hebrew people are not identified in red, so they're now probably really confused. He says, the soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. And they realize all of a sudden, wait a minute, this isn't us. Because this is a prophetic word that it hasn't even happened yet. And a lot of scholars say Nahum hasn't even seen these people before. But he's talking about the Babylonians and the Medes. They identified themselves in red. They actually put cow's blood on their shields. That was how you knew it was a Babylonian or a Mede that would come and take over Assyria. And they recognized, wait a minute, that's not us. We're not fighting that battle. The Lord is restoring us in a totally different way. And point number three is this. If you want to regain hope and remove hesitations, you see the Lord as the one who goes before to restore. It's not our battle to take out what is worthless. 
is to go to the Lord, and in his full character, we celebrate him for who he is, and not only celebrate him for who he is, but we begin to see things clearer, and we say, wait a minute, this thing over here is empty and desolate and in ruin. It's not helpful for me. It's not gratifying to me. It's not ultimate satisfaction. I've gotta let that thing pass through me. I've gotta let that thing go before I let myself go. And as you begin to read, you're like, wait a minute, okay, so how do I get rid of that thing? It goes right back to the Lord. And the Lord has already gone before you and he is ready to restore you. And so it's not something that you have to, again, carry your own burden to go walk and say, okay, I'm about to go regain hope here. Let me just figure out this burden that I am carrying. And he's saying, no, 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 let me take it. And we'll end with this. Ben, you can come on up. I wanna go back to verse seven for this last point. We said what is worthless, now let's figure out what is bringing peace. We've already read this verse, but I think it's so powerful to read again. It says, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. What good news, what publish of peace that is. So how do we surround ourselves with peace? It says that we are to look to the Lord as a stronghold, as a place that we can hide in the days of trouble. And actually Isaiah 4, 6 says this, and this will hit right here in Georgia. I grew up in the South and when I read Isaiah 4, 6, I was like, praise be to God. It says this. It says that it is, the stronghold is like a shelter but it is like the shade during the beating of the sun. <laughs> I play golf a lot in the South. Me and my dad, we, we ride our golf cart. We are running to the shade when we don't have to hit a golf ball. We're, we're driving, we're like, we gotta drive this golf cart to the shade. It is humid, it is thick, it is nasty out here. Where's the shade? After we hit our golf shot, we look at each other. Where is the shade? I want the shade. What we see here when he talks about the stronghold in the day of trouble, point number four is this, is that he's calling us to stay in the shade of our Savior. If you have lost hope this morning in a certain area of your life, he is a stronghold, meaning he will not falter. He is a place of refreshment like the shade or like a shelter. If you have lost hope and you don't feel like holding on, he will hold on to you. If you have let yourself go in an area of your life, he is saying, I haven't let go of you. You may have given up, but I have not given up on you. It may be years and years and years, and you might be like, well, the Lord is done with me. And 150 years later, he is saying, no, I will not let go of my people. I am jealous for them. He's a stronghold. He will hold you up. You lost hope, he will hold you up. You don't think you can hold it all together in front of your family, he will hold you up. You wanna quit your job right now, he will hold you up. 
You want to check out, tap out, he will hold you up. And for some of you, maybe coming to church is like your last gasp at church this morning. I don't know. Maybe the church has mistreated you. Maybe you've read something in the news about the church and you're trying to hold on one last time. And I just want you to know the Lord is holding on to you and he's not letting go. Psalms 51, 17 says this. It says that a broken and contrite heart, he will not deny. If you're broken, if you've lost hope, if you've got tons of hesitations that you think are miles and miles long and you might have a lot of those, he's saying, I will not deny you. I'm here like the shade in the sun. I'm here, I'm here. Run to the shade, run to the shade. Run to the shade, run to the shade. Find the shade, find the shelter, find the stronghold that is only found in him. And we read in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Let me just read it for you as we close. Jesus comes on the scene after 400 years of silence. They, they've got 150 years at Judah. Now we got 400 years of silence. And then the New Testament, we begin reading. And this is what he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will, will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. This message may be for you, maybe for someone around you, where they have felt hopeless for a very long time. I would just encourage you to begin sharing about what it is like being in the shelter of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to begin sharing what it's like to have rest in your soul and begin to look to him because he will not deny you. Let me pray for us before we take communion. Jesus, there's areas of our lives where we have lost hope. There's areas of our lives where we have hesitations. We admit those to you, honestly. There's areas of our lives where we feel empty, broken, desolate, where we even feel like we're reaping death. We hold all of those things And you look to us and you say, your broken and contrite heart, I will not deny. You say that you are good. You are a stronghold in our days of trouble. And so Jesus, we don't have the strength sometimes to run. We don't have the strength sometimes to hold it all together may we look to you and rely upon your goodness and your grace to say, even when I can't, you can. Even when I have lack, you do not. Would we hold on to your promises? Would we hold on to the character and nature of who you are, the full character and nature of who you are? 
that you're jealous for us, that you like us, that you want to fight for us, that you want to right our wrongs, that you're more sick of our struggles than we are, that you are good to us, that every good and perfect thing comes from you, that you have no lack. We look to you, Lord, that you are great in power. You're our stronghold. You're our place of rest. You are our shade. You are our refuge. And you know everything that is going on within us. And you still want us at the end of the day as your reward. And so we run. We run to you. Jesus, we run to you and find rest and hope again. It's in your name we pray. Amen.